we, um, are, we started a s- sermon series uh, studying the, the biblical book of James. James. Now, a few weeks ago when we began this, we told you who was the author, and I won't take too much time to belabor this point because we have a lot to cover in this hour. But James is the, there's a couple of men named James in the New Testament, and that could be confusing. A couple of men named John and uh, others, right? So Joseph. But uh, James, this James is the half-brother of Jesus, okay? So James, um, he, he grew up, his mom and dad were Mary and Joseph, and his older brother, Mary's son, was Jesus. And um, James was his brother, but James was not a believer for a long time. In fact, that'd be kind of hard to believe that much about your older brother, I suppose. But in fact, when Jesus was age 30 and began his earthly ministry, we have scriptures that we saw a few weeks ago that show us that James didn't believe on him still. James was skeptical about, about Jesus and his claims. And we saw that, uh, we studied that. Now, he heard Jesus say the same thing that everyone heard Jesus say, that Jesus was going to die for the sins of the world and rise again, that he was the promised Messiah, and that he was not there to start a new earthly kingdom or to you know, be political. He was there to die for the sins of the world, and then he was going to rise again on the third day. James heard that like everybody else. James just didn't believe it until Jesus actually pulled it off. And then when he died and rose again, James was like, oh, you know, and mom's at the, at the foot of the cross crying, and they're all there, and they, it's horrific, and the next three days they're, they're mourning, and then next thing you know, he's walking around talking to them and hundreds of other people again. It kind of changed everything, changed the world, changed the culture of that area, and has spread to us today 2,000 years later. It's amazing. But James, who was a brother to Jesus and not a believer, became a believer after the resurrection gave his life to serving Jesus, called his brother his Lord, called him his Lord, and became a leader. He actually became the leading voice in the church of Jerusalem. At one point, he seemed to be the lead pastoral voice there. And uh, eventually, he would even die for the name of Jesus. He would be stoned to death in the streets of Jerusalem for uh, preaching and pointing people to the good news of God's love demonstrated through Jesus Christ. Before he did, in, during his pastoral leadership in Jerusalem, James wrote a letter that he sent everywhere, kind of like his, you know, he wanted people who, didn't, who, who, who he couldn't lead locally on a weekly basis. He wanted to speak to them broadly. So he wrote a letter and sent it out. And 2,000 years ago, he wrote that thing, and it's still relevant to us today, full of a lot of different topics, a lot of different conversations, but they're all just kind of his book, his one big book, his one letter, that he wanted people to know these things were important. If they were important to James then, they should probably at least be interesting to us because they're probably important to us today. So as we get into that, we're going to finish James chapter 1 today. If you're following along in your Bibles, the verses will be on the screen as well. We'll be finishing the last part of chapter 1 today. Before we get into it, though, and kind of because it's graduation day, um, and I'm thinking about Irene, I'm thinking about you a little bit kind of walking into the next section of life, and every year when our graduates graduate, I think about stepping into adulthood and entering the new seasons of life. And I always think, what do I hope our young adults will carry with them in life? There's a lot of things that could fit that bill. And usually, whatever I think I would like our young adults to take with them as they enter adulthood is the same things I wish our, all adults would take with us in life. So it ends up being a reminder to all of us of what it's all about. 
So an occasion like this reminds me of what we all need to remember is the core. And so I'm going to set the stage before we finish James today. The core is, Jesus kind of summarized it, didn't he? And I won't belabor this too much, but I need to set the stage if you let me. Jesus was asked during his earthly ministry by one of the members of the Sanhedrin, one of the lawyers within the Jewish religious system, he asked Jesus, which is the greatest commandment in all the entire law? Now, when he said law, what he was referring to is what we would today call our Old Testament, or actually, outside of maybe Christian terminologies that we would use to, Ju- to, to uh, Judaistic people, that is, that is the, that's the Hebrew Scriptures, the ancient Hebrew Scriptures. And that's all they had at the time. There was no New Testament yet. So the ancient Hebrew Scriptures, which contained the laws of Moses, the, the prophets, all that writing, this man, this says to Jesus, of all those teachings and all those rules and laws and prophecies, what's the most important? What's the greatest commandment? That's a big question because there were over 613 of them. Written uh, edicts, oral traditions. I mean, there was just so much, much in there. And I don't think he was asking for this reason, but perhaps he was saying, look, if you can't do them all, what's the most important one to make sure we get that one covered? Jesus answers him by giving him two. He doesn't just give him, he doesn't just say, here's one. He says, I'm going to give you a twofer. But these two actually are not two. They really are one. They sound very different. And and Jesus even explains, you've made them seem different in how you do religion, but they're never meant to be separate. They are the same idea in different lingo. So Jesus says the greatest commandment is to love God and love others, to love the Lord your God with all your being, to love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says the two go together. And this is a big idea because the, the people in Jesus' day who had the ancient Hebrew scriptures as their, as their guide, they did, by the time Jesus showed up, they did what we do 2,000 years later in, a, in Christianity today. They are, were guilty at that time of what we're guilty of today, and that is separating our morality between the vertical and the horizontal. Like somehow, if I am right with God, or I say I am, I don't really have to be right with you. I mean, I could, I could be, I could, you know, mistreat my parents, my family, my spouse, my neighbors. I can do what I have to do for myself. I could be critical. I could be wrong. I could be rude. I could be a thousand things that are self-serving in relationships, but that's okay because I'm religious, and in the name of God, that's, I'm going to use God to justify my bad behavior, and, and me and God are okay, so that's all that matters. And of course, you can't judge if me and God are okay, because you can't see me and God. You, you don't know that. So I have my religious expressions, and vertically, I feel like me and God are okay, so therefore, the rest is secondary. And Jesus was making it very clear, you can't separate those concepts, that you can't separate loving God and loving each other. Because the two go together, and and how we love God is reflected in how we love the people that God created whom he loves. So Jesus says these two are the same. And then he says this, on these two ideas rest the entire Hebrew scriptures. All the teachings, all the prophecies, and the prophets, and all the law, all rest on those two ideas. In other words, love God, love others, Jesus said, the rest of the Old Testament is commentary. It's commentary on that. It's commentary on how that looks. You turn to Isaiah, turn to Deuteronomy. It's commentary on loving God and loving others. 
So uh, the reason I'm telling you that is because as, as you think about, you know, new seasons of life and graduates and all of us, as, no matter how old or young we are, what, is the, what matters? Well, Jesus actually then took it a step further. Because the day before he was crucified, in fact, the night that he was arrested, Jesus is in an upper room with his 12 closest disciples sharing a last meal, doing Passover. And during that time, Jesus makes a statement. He says, I'm going to give you a brand new commandment. And honestly, we look at that and we're just like, oh, that's nice. But if you think about that, apart from our 21st century detachment, that's an alarming statement. Like everyone in the room should have gotten up and left when Jesus said that. You don't give a new commandment. They already had the commandments. Like, who do you think you are, God? And Jesus would be like, yes, I am. And I'm going to show it to you when I go die on the cross tomorrow and rise again on the third day. I'm giving you a new commandment. You don't give new commandments. I mean, that's crazy, right? But Jesus says, no, I'm going to basically, and when he says new, it's very important to understand, he was saying these are new marching orders. Because as Hebrews would say later on, so much of what's old is, is old. It's, it, actually, the word Hebrews uses is obsolete in a sense of not that it's not pertinent to us. It, it serves as examples and so many things. But we're not a nation of people trying to figure out how to navigate planting ourselves in a new locale. We are Jesus followers marching to his, his commands. And so Jesus fulfilled that covenant, completed that contract, uh, and he became the sacrifice of the fulfillment that no one could fulfill on the cross. And he said, I'm giving you new marching orders. And he says, here they are. John 13, 34. He said, so I'm giving you a new commandment. Love each other. And I can picture across the table, uh, yeah, yes, Thomas. Uh, you got a good question for me, Thomas? Well, I doubt it, but uh, here goes. Um, that's a joke. Um, you said love each other. And that's cool, but you're missing, you, you forgot the other part. I've heard you talk, and you're supposed to say love God and love others. Didn't you miss that first part? She's like, no, no, I said what I meant. Love each other. And then maybe Peter says, but, but, but we heard you tell the other guys. And she's like, I know. I was summarizing the Hebrew scriptures in a nutshell. As, as the, as, but I'm giving you a new marching order, and it's love each other. Well, yes, yes, uh, Matthew, what is it? So do we, don't have, we don't have to love God anymore? That's all, we're off the hook? No, 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 no. You don't understand. The two go together, but because we're so good at separating loving God, vertical relationship and horizontal relationship, and you somehow think that because you do this somehow right through religious expression, you're off the hook for this. I'm just going to simplify it real simple. Love each other. And the Christian, if you read the New Testament through this lens, you'll see an amazing concept that we are called, we are reminded over and over again to love God, that you know, God blesses those who love him. But when it comes to a lot of the teachings and commands, you'll see this in the New Testament. We're told to have faith in God, have faith that he loves us. And because we have faith that he loves us and put our trust in his gospel, we are then called to love each other. And that's how we express God's love. If you don't understand that, let John, who wrote this verse, explain it later without turning there. In his own epistle, John explained, if you claim you love God whom you cannot see, but you hate your brother whom you do see, you don't have the love of God. You can't understand that this is how we do the love God part. And so basically, the entire New Testament kind of unpacks this idea. When you read what Paul writes what James writes in today's study, what Peter writes, they don't leverage the Hebrew scriptures to tell us how to live. They, they refer to them. They, they make a reference point. They're used as examples. But they tell us, they don't say, I know you want to kill, but one hang up. 
thou shalt not kill. Oh, man, I can't do that. I was going to do that. But there's a rule. They said um, they, they would reference those things, but they would leverage for authority. They would leverage Jesus' new marching orders. Love each other. Here's the thing. If I love my neighbor the way I'm supposed to, if I love you as I'm supposed to, I'm not going to kill you. If I love my wife like I'm supposed to, I'm not going to cheat on her. If you love your husband the way you're supposed to, you're not going to uh, cheat on him. You're not going to sleep with someone else's spouse if you love them like you're supposed to love them. You're not going to sleep with someone's future spouse. You're not going to cheat someone in, in a business deal. You're not going to uh, slander somebody with gossip and criticism. You're not going to cut people down with words and treat them cruelly. See, every, Jesus was saying, if you love one another as I've loved you, if you'll follow my new command, it's going to take care of all of it. Because just like in the old time, that was, that was the whole nutshell and everything else was commentary. He's saying, in my new marching orders, Jesus is saying, love one another as I have loved you. And really, when you read the New Testament, the rest is commentary on that. And that's why you get so much teaching about the one another's. Be kind to one another, forgive one another, be tenderhearted towards one another, serve one another, sacrifice for one another, honor one another. It's, it's the commentary on this. And we can look back at the examples that Corinthians tells us that, that the ancient stories are examples for us. We can reference all these, these things in life. But ultimately, if we will follow Jesus' one new command, it's covered. In fact, everything that these new writers say is they say, in light of that, here's how you act as a husband. In light of that, here's how you act as a wife. In light of that, here's how you act as a parent, as a child, as a neighbor, as an employer, as an employee, as a citizen. In light of this, let's, comment, let's give you let's give you this explanation on how it means to love each other as Jesus loved us. That's a pretty big order. As Jesus loved us, you saw what that looked like, right? That wasn't mamsy, pamsy, feel good. That was sacrificial, serve, give my life for kind of love. So entering adulthood, already in adulthood, someday be in adulthood, you want some good advice to carry on life? Love each other as God loves us. Put your faith, put your faith and trust that God loves you. Believe that. That's the gospel, the good news, that God so loved the world that he gave his son. Believe God's love demonstrated through Christ. Accept by faith that you are loved by God and he's done what he did to bring you to himself. Put your faith in that. And because of that, love one another as he's loved us. Now today, we're going to read some of the things that James had to say as commentary to that right there. So that was extra. That was free. You could have gone home earlier today if I wouldn't have done that just now. Because now we're going to start James. So you're welcome. That was just free. But you have, we have cupcakes in the back. So I, I, um, if I went too long because of that extra introduction, cupcakes, okay? So... Um, Yay. If you're online, you get no cupcakes. I'm so sorry. You can just go to your fridge, your phone, and keep watching and get your own snacks as you watch online, if you're home. Okay. Anyhow, um, James says this. In James 1, verses 19 to 27 is what we're going to look at today. Ready? James 1, 19, here's how he begins. And he begins with a punch. He says, understand this, my dear brothers and sisters. You must all be quick to listen slow to speak, and slow to get angry. Wow. Now, this is, what, this is what's hard for me as a pastor. If you've been around this, me for very many years, you know that I want to take this verse right here and spend the whole day on it. Because this is hard to study James over one summer. It's hard because most of these things deserve their own weeks. This deserves it. I wrote it in my notes in my office to spend a whole week someday on just this verse because it's so powerful. 
but we don't have time to do that in this summer series. So let me just go ahead and quickly summarize it. Isn't that good advice? Quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to get angry. Like if we did that, wouldn't the world be a better place? Like some of us do the opposite of that. We're very slow to listen, quick to speak, and quick to get angry. And boy, we're, we're funny about how we do that sometimes, aren't we? We're funny because what we do is we will um, say, well, that's just how I am. I'm the kind of person that just speaks my mind. That's just who I am. As if somehow that's some kind of an excuse for bad behavior. Like, I just, that's just who I am. I just say what I'm thinking without a filter. Like, you, try that in other areas of life. Well, that's just who I am. I just kill people when I don't like them. I just, I just murder. That's just who I am. You know, I just, I just cheat on people. I just cheat on my spouse. That's just who I am. You know, it is a silly idea, but we do this when it comes to our tongue. We justify, and what we ought to do is say, hey, here's some really good instruction. Be quick to listen. And, and, and look, I need to do this. We all need to do this. Quick to listen. That means when there's things that would offend us or bother us or we disagree with or we think they're wrong, listen and understand. Where are they coming from? Why are they the way they are? What, what's go- listen. Listen. Quick to listen. I, like my impulse, my, my, I shouldn't have to sit there and say, okay, listen. I should be quick to say, I want to hear. I want to learn. I want to explore the frontiers of my ignorance. Amen? I want to listen. Quick to listen. Slow to speak. And slow to get angry. Whew, that's good stuff. Imagine what a difference it would make in our homes if we did that. Our marriages. Like, don't elbow your spouse when I say that. Like, you know. Um, don't, imagine what they do in our businesses, in our politics. Imagine what that would do for our social interactions. Imagine what that would do for our social media interactions. If we would all be like, quick to listen, like, hey, I want to understand your point of view. And slow to speak. And slow to get angry and fire from the hip, right? That would, that would change everything. And then he says this in verse 20. He says, human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. This is a very big concept because he's going to use the word righteousness and religion later on to make a similar point, righteousness and religion. And he says, God doesn't like the righteousness that you think is righteous with human anger. Now, there's a lot of, you don't have to be a Christian or a Jesus or a religious person to have anger issues. That's just human, human anger. That's why it's human anger. This is as natural and as humanistic as can be. By the way, what Jesus calls us to is, a, is countercultural. What Jesus calls us to is against. What makes us different, supposed to make us different as humans in this world, is not because we have weird dress codes or hairstyles or traditions or tastes or so whatever weird things churches sometimes do. It's that in a world that is self-serving, dog-eat-dog, survival of the fittest, me over you, just get ahead, what's best for me, trample on you, my pride, my way, what I deserve. In a world that, that, that feeds a selfish mindset, we're supposed to be so countercultural like Jesus was. And the thing is, anger is very human. Very broken human way is to be angry. But it does not produce the righteousness that God desires. And the reason that's important to say is because while anger is human, a lot of people enter the religious space and they take their anger with them, but they call it spiritual. Or here's the term you've probably heard. I have righteous indignation. Half the people that claim they have righteous indignation, there's nothing righteous about their indignation. It's just their way of, of spiritualizing that they have an anger problem. I have righteous indignation. Well, if the indignation was justified, your expression of it surely is not righteous. 
And human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. It won't produce it in you or me. When I'm that way, it won't produce it in me. And it certainly won't produce it in anybody else. Like human anger does nothing to say, man, let's just be honest. When you see somebody just going off on you in person or on social media, somebody's like, just going off on you, no one sits there and says, man, they really let me have it. I, I stand so corrected. They were so arrogant and looked down upon me and tore me a new one. And now I see their point of view and I'm a changed person, right? Said no one ever. It doesn't change it in you. It won't change it in anyone else. It just does not do the trick. And James is saying, watch out, because you're not going to do what God's doing in your life or in anyone else's life through your expressions of anger that you spiritualize. Mm. And you're missing what he's trying to do in you and in the world around you. And then James says this. So get rid of all the filth and evil in your lives. And i got to pause here, because I, and look, if you didn't grow up in church world, congratulations. Whenever I talk about growing up in church world and mention the dysfunction of some of the things you see, church is awesome. Church has done a lot of good things, but church has also done a lot of bad things and goofy things through the years too. And so sometimes those of us who've been in it long enough point this out. And if you've not been in it, possibly if you, it's because of this reason um, or reasons like this, but sometimes... You know, when you hear the word filth used in church, it's always other people's, you know, this, this, the filth of the world, you know. And, and usually what, what filth is referring to is whatever the particular speaker wants to call filthy or being corrupted by the world, don't be conformed to this world. Whatever tangent that speaker's on is what he means. And we don't often look at context. In the context of what James is saying here, if you are following along with your Bibles here and as we read these verses, is he's saying when we are not quick to listen... We're not slow to speak. We're not slow to get angry. And we have human anger that's not the righteousness of God. What it does is, is it does something and it brings, we need to get rid of that, that filth and that evil in our lives. The context, see, because I know a lot of Christians who we're vocally angry, not we hopefully, but some are vocally angry about the filth of other people around them. And we don't consider that maybe our attitude and our arrogance and our actions are the filth and evil we need to get rid of. And that's the context of what he's saying in these last few verses. That, that we should do what's right and follow God with humble hearts. But have a, here's the thing. This is just, this is really, I'm not sure this is really fits, but it just is so important. The, the longer I've been doing this, I mean, look, we Christians ought to be the most gracious, patient, kind, loving to anybody people in the world if we've experienced the radical love of God. And, and to the point that we get mad at people for offending our sensibilities in our home or in culture in general, we need to ask ourselves, is our anger righteous like we think it is, or do we need to get rid of that filth and evil from our lives? And James says, and humbly accept the word that God has planted in your hearts. And, and humbly is the word. Humility is everything. It's about ability to sit there and say, for me and for you all to say, hey, I have not arrived. I need to listen and, and accept some things. How do, you, how do you be humble? Humble's hard. How do you be humble? You can't be humble on purpose. Like, look how humble I am. Do you see how humble I am? I'm humble. You know, that just doesn't seem humble, right? So how do, you, how, how do you be humble? Well, you humbly accept. Here's one way to be humble. You accept the word God has placed in your hearts. And in this context, the word he's placing in their hearts right here is our attitude towards our anger and our quick reactions. And he's saying when you accept instruction, when you accept God's word, that he speaks through his spirit to you or through his word to you, 
when you accept that, mm, it takes humility. It takes humility to accept with humility what we need to hear. He says, do that because it has the power to save your souls. And don't miss that phrase, power to save your souls. I don't think he's referring to salvation specifically right now as far as where you live for eternity. I do think that that does apply. For example, when it comes to the doctrine of eternal life and how we come to Christ, we understand that there are those who reject God's love because they don't care. There are others who religiously say, I don't need God because I'm good enough on my own. So it takes a humility to say, no, I'm a sinner, I'm broken, I, I need a Savior, and to humbly accept that God gave his love for me and put my faith in his sacrifice, not mine, that saves my soul. That's the power to save my soul. That's the doctrine of salvation. But on a practical level, this applies to everything we're talking about today. That when I can, can hear someone say to me, be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to get angry, well, that's just the way I am. Yeah, but human anger doesn't, oh. When I can humbly accept instruction about that, it has the power to save my souls. There's a lot of people, we've lost ourselves. We've lost our souls along the way. I don't mean eternally, but we've lost ourselves. You know people, and you're like, you look at them and say, I don't know why you, like, what is that Tim McGraw song? I don't know why you got to be angry all the time. Why you got to be angry all the time? And I think sometimes we just get in a space where we just get um, unhealthy in our reactions, and it's okay at first, but then it grows and it festers, and at some point in life, we've lost our way. And James says, if you just step back and look at verse 19 and just humbly accept God's word here, let it get into your hearts. Look at what he's saying. Look at his word. All that he said through the years, all that he said through the scriptures, this can save you eternally through faith in Christ and in, in your marriage, in your life, in your well-being, in every part of your life, if we can get rid of the wrong and humbly accept what God is saying to us. Then James makes a statement in the next verse that ought to resonate throughout all of Christianity, throughout all of time. It would have prevented a ton of problems through the years. It would have prevented a lot of abuse through the church, through the centuries, through the name of religion and Jesus that were misused. It would have changed our homes. It would change our own culture here today in America. It would help the American church find true revival if we would do this next thing James says. In verse 22, James says this. Don't just listen to God's word. You must do what it says. Otherwise, he says, otherwise you're only fooling yourselves. Now that's a big statement. Because I think for some of us in, in the church world, it becomes a cultural thing to be religious. We might open our version Bible apps, or we might open our Bibles at home and read some scripture and say, I'm a good Christian because I read the Bible, or I went to church building on Sunday. And I heard God's word being taught. And it's like we compartmentalize. Like if I just go and read the book or listen to the message, then I just do my own thing the rest of the time. And what James is saying here is no. That's, there's, no there's no merit in doing that. There's no merit in listening. It's absolutely pointless if you don't do what it says. Because otherwise, he says, you, otherwise you're only fooling yourselves. See, I think what happens is that when we compartmentalize, there's lots of Christians who we just think we're kind of ahead of the game because I read my Bible. Did you read your Bible today? I read my Bible today. Did you read your Bible? I read my Bible. Did you go to church? I went to church. Did you go? I went. And so what? I went to the doctor because I was sick, and the doctor says, well, here's what you need to do. And I walked out, and I didn't do it, but you know what? I went. Did you go to the doctor? I went to the doctor. So what? He said, what's the point of listening to God's word? 
you read your Bible through in a year, and it takes you 15 minutes a day. That's 15 minutes you could have been getting a head start on whatever else you had to do. You could have cleaned the house a little bit. Went to church on Sunday. You could have been golfing, man. You missed a good golf game. Why'd you go to church? Because, because why? I had to listen to God's word. So what? That doesn't mean anything. I'm the pastor who's saying that, right? So like a pastor saying going to church could be a waste of your time is like, this is bad job security for me, I suppose. Um, or saying don't read your Bible. I'm not saying that. I'm saying the point is not just to listen to God's word. Because if we stop there, it really, really was a waste of time. We're fooling ourselves. And James gives a funny analogy in the next verse. Here's what he says. For if you listen to the word and don't obey, don't do what it says, don't do the instruction you hear or read or listen to, if you listen to the word, don't obey, it's like glancing at your face in a mirror. You know, hopefully all of us today glanced at ourselves in the mirror before we came out of the house. Hopefully all of us did that. If If you haven't done that, I recommend every day we all do that. The older I get, the more it's important to do every day, multiple times perhaps. But he says, if you listen to the word and you don't obey, it's like glancing at your face in the mirror. And then he says, verse 24, you see yourself and then you walk away and forget what you look like. So just picture how funny that is in, in theory. So like I get, you get up in the morning and you stagger, to, you know, if you're like, you know, the older I get, you, know, you get to the bathroom, you can't really see, and you're trying to look in the mirror, your eyes are blurry, and you look, and you realize that your hair is kind of matted three different ways from sleeping on it. It's just like going all over the place, and it's like, you can't even knock it down, it's just, it's just bad. And, um, and you realize that something kind of works out of your nose that night, I'm being gross here, but it works out of your nose, you got a glob hanging right there, just kind of from the right nostril, just sitting there. You get a little mustache, but you don't have facial hair, you just have a mustache from other fallout. And you're like, man... That's bad. That doesn't look good. And James says it's like looking at yourself in the mirror and seeing that and saying, ooh, I need to fix that. And then walking away and forgetting what you look like. So then you put on your clothes, you eat breakfast, you go out of the house and you're walking through town. And then you have a friend, right? Imagine someone walking up to somebody and saying, hey, listen, come out. Um, look, I, I'm your friend. Imagine going to somebody and saying, hey, look, I don't want to embarrass you. I'm your friend but you got something hanging out of your nose on the right side, just kind of globbed up there. It's kind of, I don't want to embarrass you, but I thought if I don't tell you, you're going to make a, I just want to help you. You might want to take it. And imagine that person saying to you, oh, no, sh- don't, listen, don't worry. I looked in the mirror this morning. You're like, wait, you actually looked in the mirror and saw that? Yeah, I did. Did you, did you I looked in the mirror. Did you look in the mirror? I looked in the mirror. Did you look in the mirror? I looked. You're like, oh. and, and you did nothing with that thing there food in your teeth. No, no, I looked. You're like, that was kind of a waste of the time to look. Yeah, it kind of makes you look more stupid because you actually saw that and didn't change it. Like, uh, what's the point? I thought you didn't know. Now you look, now you seem odd. James says, don't be that person. But that's who we are. That's how, what is it, what do they say? We are fooling ourselves when we listen to God's word, but we don't do what it says. It's kind of like it's, it's, this is why a lot of people, maybe some of you listening to this today, this is what you are. That's why some of us are turned off towards religion and towards the church. Because we know a bunch of people that call themselves God people, and they don't seem to do what he's, they don't, they're hypocrites. They live, no, they live worse in some ways. They live no better. They, they just have different kinds of sins that they justify. They don't, they're no better. But they think they're all good because they go to a building on Sunday. Or they read a book. And you're like, Really? 
You're like, hey, I'm your friend. You probably shouldn't be angry like that. Hey, listen, I'm, as a friend, you probably shouldn't yell at your, you probably should listen before you speak. Hey, hey, don't tell me, don't, listen, before you tell me I have an anger problem, I just want to tell you, I read the Bible. Did you read the Bible this morning? I read the Bible. Did you read the Bible? I read the Bible. Did you go to church? I went to church. So? You, you actually saw that God says that and you still act that way? Yeah. That's worse. You should have just played golf. You see, don't just listen to what God says. We, we got to say, all of us, I have to sit there and say, God, what is it I need to work on? Ooh, it's like looking in a mirror and I see myself and I say, ooh, that's not how a husband should act. I need to do better. And then I walk away and say, let me do better. Let me fix that. Not, well, that's okay. I read it. I heard someone ramble on stage about it, so I'm, I'm all good now. No, I got to do something with it, right? That's the point. Otherwise, I'm only fooling myself. Verse 25 says this. James says, but if you look carefully into the perfect law, if you look in the mirror, if you look into the God's, what God says, if you look into carefully into the perfect law that sets you free, if you look at it carefully, and if you do what, and if you do what it says, that's the other part. You look in the mirror, and you do what it says. And don't forget what you heard. Then God will bless you for what? Then God will bless you for doing it. That's the point. The point of looking is saying, God, show me what I need to work on. Let me get a glimpse of myself for who I am so I can be a better whoever to whoever I need to be. And, and so we look. And there's no brownie points because I belong to a club of people that look in the mirror. It's the heart that says, I want to know what God shows me so I can be a better person. That's the point. And I love how he calls it the perfect law that sets you free. I don't want to over-expound on that phrase because James uses that phrase again later in his book, probably several weeks from now. But it's an interesting phrase that I don't want to rush past. The perfect law that sets you free. Like, what does that mean? Because most of us think that laws take our freedom away. We oppose, we hate what we consider unjust laws. But Jesus says, James is saying through the Spirit of God here, that law sets you free. Because let's be honest, if I don't have guidelines in, in my life to keep me, to, to show me which way to go, and I do whatever I do, I might, I might lose my freedom. People might lock me up. I might lose my opportunities, my influence, my relationships, my health, everything. Freedom comes from having good law, good instruction, good guidelines, good operating perimeters. And, 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 and James is saying Jesus' law, this perfect law that we're commenting on, and how we deal with our anger specifically today, that will set you free. And if we do that, we look at that, we do what it says, and don't forget what we've heard, God blesses that. God honors this, us for doing it, not for hearing it, but for doing it. And then James wraps up this whole section in verse number uh, 26 to 27 by doing, by doing something very interesting. He tells us what religion is and what religion isn't. He says, if you claim to be religious... But don't control your tongue. This is important because you and I sometimes, you may, we, may, we may look at the Bible verses like they're fortune cookies. Like they're all detached from each other. All these verses that we're reading today aren't various topics. They're all one big conversation. And he started by saying, be quick to listen. Be slow to speak, slow to get angry. Human anger doesn't produce God's righteousness. At the end of the chapter, he's still on the same topic. And he says, if we claim to be religious but don't control our tongue, he's still on the same topic. 
He says, you are fooling, there's that same phrase as we saw earlier, you're fooling yourself and your religion is worthless. Wow, what a statement that is. A lot of us, we claim to be religious, but am I controlling my tongue? Am I, I claim to be religious, but am I using, do I, do I say or type or speak or write things that are, that shouldn't have been said because that's just how I am, that's how I feel? Or am I, but I'm religious. If we claim to be religious, but we don't control ourselves that way. And by the way, the tongue, James is going to spend a whole bunch of verses in chapter 3 about the tongue. Hang tight for that, it's a few weeks from now. But if we don't figure out that earlier part of being slow to speak, slow to get angry, quick to listen, if we don't control our tongue, but we claim to be religious, we're fooling ourselves. And our religion is worthless. It is worthless. There's a lot of worthless religion. My religion, if I don't do this, is worthless to me. I will feel very pious. We used to make the joke, funny term, being a pious gas bag was the term we would joke about. I, I'm a very pious man but I don't control my tongue, it's worthless. It's not doing me any good. It's not impressing God. It doesn't produce the righteousness God desires, we saw earlier. But not only is my religion worthless to me if I'm that way, my religion's worthless to you. My religion's worthless to my neighbor. My religion, our religion, if, if we don't control our tongue, is worthless to society who needs to believe that God loves them and that they, we have good news. And if we don't control our tongue and, and do the things that James is talking about in these verses— we have a worthless, worthless version of religion. And it shouldn't be that way. And so James, actually, the very last verse tells us what true religion actually looks like. In verse 27, he says, Pure and genuine religion in the sight of God the Father means caring for the orphans and widows in their distress and refusing to let the world corrupt you. This is our final verse. Let me just take a minute to comment. Let me start with the end. Refusing to let the world corrupt you. Again, growing up in church, I know that sometimes we pull phrases like that out and just whatever the speaker's pet peeve is, don't let the world corrupt you. But in context of this section that it's being written in, he's saying, don't be like the world. Be like Jesus because the world is a dog-eat-dog, survival of fittest, do what's best for me, get ahead of you, self-serving, um, Lord over you, look out for old number one type world. And Jesus came to do something different. Jesus said, when he came, I didn't come to be served, I came to serve. He's God. He was God. But he didn't come to be served as God. He came to serve others. He humbled himself and became obedient to death for our sake. And so Jesus said, in my economy, the greatest is not the leader. The greatest is the servant. That if you want to be like me, serve each other like I served you. Love each other like I've loved you. That's how you follow me. Don't let the world corrupt you. Don't be like the rest of the world. Don't be like humans with human anger running around looking out for me. Because why does anyone need that? Most of the world has that already in their marriage, in their family, in their home, in their job. When they come to see religion and they see the same garbage, that's worthless. But we're supposed to be religious. We're supposed to be Jesus followers. And then we refuse to get corrupted by the ways of the world. And we love and serve like Jesus did and follow his model. We will be like today's passage. Quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to get angry. We will be genuine in our righteousness and in our religion. And then he says this, it means caring for the orphans and the widows in their distress. Very interesting commentary because if you were to go back if you were to go back um, to James's day especially, something was true about culture. It's still kind of true today. 
It's gotten better in Western society because I think we've, we've built culture in the West centuries ago on Christian principles that I think govern better than this. But some parts of the world today, this is still true. And 2,000 years ago in the Middle East here, it was very true that if you were an orphan or a widow, you were toast. Because all the men had all the power. The men had all the power. Only men could vote. Only men could testify in court. Only men could own land. And again, it's not great today, but we've made progress in some parts of the world today. But it was really bad back then. Basically, if you were a woman who didn't have a husband to care for you, you were a widow or an orphan, you were just toast. And James is saying to his people what we can say today to all of us. That if you want pure and genuine religion, don't think you're better than the rest of the world. Don't sit there and, and look down. Don't be arrogant and full of yourself and judgmental. Don't be angry and call it righteous. He says, you want to be religious the way God is looking for righteousness? Pure and genuine religion is going out and serving those people who, have, who can do nothing for you in return. It's serving those people who can do nothing to help pay you back. That's why, that's why loving God and loving others is the same commandment. Because that's how we love God, by loving others. What can you do for God? Hey, God, I got you a brand new watch. You are welcome. I mean, really? Well, I gave him my praise. Praise him or not, he's still God. He stepped into a world that could do nothing for him and said, I just love you. I want you back. I want, I want you all back more than I want you to pay. So he stepped in and, and did for us who could do nothing for him. And and, and, and we believe on him and he brings us into his relationship at his expense. And he continues to bless us as messed up as we can be. And we want to be like Jesus. We have to look to care for people who could do nothing. People who could not pay us back. People who can't give us a raise. People who can't, um, you know, make us wealthier. People who can't um, give us a position of, of prestige or make us a better influencer or a thousand other things. When you look at people who could do nothing for you in return, but you say, let me help you because God has been good to me and I just want to serve you like he served me. That's pure. If the church today, especially the Western church like we live in today, if the church today would get good at serving others the way God served us, instead of running our mouths and using our tongues and being angry in the name of God and religion, if we would change that whole thing, it, changed, it could change everything. It would actually be good news again. We'd make a difference in the world if we did that. If we practiced that kind of religion, the kind that Jesus modeled for us, it would change everything. And so, in conclusion, what did Jesus say was his new commandment? Love one another as I have loved you. Serve one another. All those things, as I have, as I have loved you. And today was simply some commentary on that.